0: Well, our text, which is the entirety of Genesis 38, is a chapter that seems to be um, somewhat out of place. Uh, actually, if you read the last sentence of chapter 37 and the first chapter of, uh, first sentence of chapter 39, they're seamless. Um, but its placement is important. Uh, its placement is, uh, is purposeful because it not only helps build the tension between 37 and 39, when we're anticipating, it's building the tension of what's going to happen next in the life of David. Sorry, in the life of Joseph. But it also, more than that, it sets a comparison between Judah and his father, Jacob. And then it also sets up a contrast Between Judah and Joseph. But most important, this text is yet another example in which we see how God loves to take what was meant for evil and use it for good. We see again that He loves to salvage what's marred, He loves to redeem those who deserve judgment. He loves to bring blessing out of that which has been cursed. It's a story that reminds us, as we just sang, our sins though they're many, His mercy is more. And the outline we're going to follow is found in its usual place, three points. We're going to look at the downward spiral of Judah we're going to look at the devious scheme of Tamar and then finally the d- divine scope of God. Children, you're going to find your words in their normal place that you're listening for. And I want to just um, say quickly to keep your ears open for an application that's specifically for you as we, uh, when we get to that point, okay? Uh, let's can, let's uh, pray before we continue. Uh, Father, would you give us ears to hear... And prepare our hearts and minds to receive this, your word. Grant me grace, fill me with your spirit, that I might do something good for you and your people this evening. Attend to me as I do this work that you've called me to, and I pray these things for Christ's sake and the sake of his church. Amen. Well, last week in chapter 37, we saw um, Ju- Judah's downward spiral begin. It began with the idea he had of selling Joseph into slavery, and it was an idea, of course, that his brothers embraced. And here in chapter 38, we see him descend further over the course of 20 years, And we see it begin in verse 1. It says, And it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And right away we see Judah withdraw from his family. And not only does he withdraw from his family, but he befriends a Canaanite. And not only does he befriend a Canaanite, but he also punctuates this slide by marrying a Canaanite. It's a classic example of a rebellious child on the run. He turned his back, he turned his back on, and disassociated himself from those closest to him, and he united himself or associated himself with someone or, or those who were the antithesis of what was expected of those who were from the promised line. He was forsaking the godly for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous, the holy for the unholy. He was rejecting the promises of God. He was seeking only to pursue his own idols and to satisfy his own sinful lusts. He wasn't thinking about anybody but himself. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, when he wanted to do it, where he wanted to do it, with whom he wanted to do it, and he didn't care or he wasn't concerned about those who would be hurt in the process. He didn't care what the cost may be, and I say that for a couple of reasons. First, he disregarded his family history. Judah knew good and well, he would have known the story of how his great-grandfather Abraham had gone to significant lengths to secure a wife for his grandfather Isaac. He also would have known that his grandfather Isaac had forbidden his father Jacob from marrying a Canaanite. And he also would have known he was following in the footsteps of his uncle Esau, who caused a great deal of grief for his grandparents by marrying Hittite women. But second... Moses' description at the end of verse 2 is significant. He says specifically, Judah uh, Judah took his wife. By the way, we never do learn her name. But not only did he take take his wife, he went into her, and then this rapid-fire description in verses 3 to 5 of his children that she conceived, that that all reveals this self-gratifying nature of the relationship. He wasn't concerned about doing what was right, he wasn't concerned about the example that he was setting for his boys, he wasn't concerned about the woman that he was using, he was only concerned about himself, and of course, there were grave consequences as a result. In verses 6 to 11, we read that Jacob chose a Canaanite wife for his son, Ur, and her name was Tamar, but Moses said, Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And that the Lord put him to death. And we're not told the extent of his wickedness. We're not, uh, we, we, he doesn't say specifically what it might have been, but I think we can assume his display of depravity must have been similar to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And following her death, Judah instructed his middle son, Onan, to fulfill the custom of the day, which was to enter into what was referred to or is referred to as a leveret marriage with a sister-in-law. A weird custom that we don't understand, but it was a custom of the day where the brother-in-law would marry his sister-in-law, the purpose of having an heir. And that heir would be his older brother's, not his own. And this meant that the child would inherit heirs double portion of the inheritance that was due the oldest son, but this of course was going to lessen Onan's portion that he was now expecting. So he came up with a plan. His plan would be to appear to be a good brother and fulfill his vow. He, his plan was to be or appear to be a good husband and fulfill all of his conjugal responsibilities And then all the while, while that was going on, at the same time, he would secretly inhibit the conception of a child. And he would do that by continually or repetitively interrupting their intimacy. But this plan would not only ensure Onan's Double pour, uh, not only ensure of his, you know, his own inheritance, right? Ensure that which he wanted, but it would also disregard the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And it was also going to impede the promise or the multiplication of promised descendants. But that's not all. It was also going to treat his relationship with Tamar as nothing more than transactional. And then in the end, it was going to cast a shadow of uh, of disgrace upon Tamar, who, like everyone else, would believe that she was infertile. And verse 10 says, what he did was wicked. it was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord put him to death also. But rather than cause Judah to, to consider his own sin and, and his contribution to this mess that his family was in, he blamed Tamar for his son's deaths. And not only did he blame her, but he, he refused to fulfill his responsibility as the head of the household to take care of her. And he sent her home to her own father. And then he lies and, and says that he's going to send his youngest son, Shelah, once he's old enough to fulfill a leveret marriage. In other words, Judah cast her into one one pastor described as a childless, widowed exile. And that brings us to our second point, the devious scheme of Tamar in verses 12 to 23. Tamar had been scorned. Though she had been faithful to the family, the family had not been faithful to her, in the words of Gordon Wenham. Until this point, Tamar had been a passive object, acted upon, or, alas, not acted upon, by Judah and his sons. Now, perceiving an injustice having been done, she suddenly races into rapid, purposeful action. You see, in the course of time, having realized that she had been lied to, And having no legal recourse in and of herself, and no hope of anyone intervening on her behalf, she comes up with a shrewd plan of her own. She wants to secure not only her rightful place within the family, but she also wants to have the offspring she was due. After Judah's wife died, and after he had fulfilled the days of mourning, he decided to go to Timnah with his Canaanite friend, Hurah. And they were going to go enjoy themselves at the sheep shearing festival. And that was going to involve several nights of both wine and women. And when Tamar found out where he was headed, she disguised herself as a prostitute, hid behind a veil, and then strategically placed herself where Judah would see her not knowing who she was, Judah sees her and propositions her. And they, they negotiate a price. And they come up with the price of a goat. But he didn't have a goat. And so she asks, she asks for a security deposit. She'll take his signet, corded, and staff. And the signet was a cylinder stamp that he would use to sign or to put his mark on important documents, and that was attached to a cord which hung around his neck. And so by giving her that, as well as his staff, it would be similar to us handing over our driver's license and a credit card for a security deposit. And in verse 18, Moses said, Judah gave them to her and procured her services. And again, in the words of Gordon Wenham, Judah takes the bait. His sexual appetite will not tolerate postponement, though he has been content to let Tamar languish as a childish or childless widow. And Moses said she conceived. Right? Which meant her plan was successful. She, she got what she wanted, and having accomplished what she set out to do, she returns home. She she takes off her. Her disguise, and she puts back, uh, puts her morning clothes back on, and she waits for the grand unveiling, pun intended. Judah also returned home, and rather than risk his reputation, he sends Hurrah with the goat, to go find her and to get his things back. But unfortunately, Hurrah can't find her, and no one can help. No one's seen her. So to save face, Judah just says, just never mind. Stop the search. And, of course, he hoped the whole situation would go away or at least remain confidential. And that leads us to our last point, the divine scope. Look at verse 24. Moses writes, And about three months later Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out. Let her be burned. Now, technically, Tamar was betrothed to his youngest son, Shelah. And she's described, or she was labeled as a harlot. And the the pregnancy, the, the child or children within her, was designated as an adulterous act. And both of these things were true. They were more true than anyone, particularly Judah, even understood. So Judah's call for her death by burning, while extreme, was legitimate. But his outrage, his outrage exhibited his self-righteousness and his hypocrisy. His double standard. But here's where the story turns. And the story turns from the focus um, of on, on man's sins and schemes to the mercy and grace of God. Look at verse 25. As Tamar was being brought out, he, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah is put immediately on the hot seat. He's not going to be able to escape. He could have and most Most men probably would have attempted in some way to weasel his way out and to put the blame on her because despite her motivation and despite the fact that she was simply trying to correct an injustice, she had sinned. But by the mercy and grace of God, he responds with repentance. Look at verse 26. Judah identified his things and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. The Lord used Tamar's devious scheme to bring Judah to a point of repentance where he accepted his responsibility, he owned his sin He even absolved Tamar and forgave her. He admits that she would not have felt compelled to do what she did in regard to him had he not failed to do what he should have done in regard to her. And then we read this in verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, "'This one came out first.' But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, "'What a breach you have made for yourself!' Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah." So the Lord blesses or blessed Tamar with twins, but he also blessed Jacob with twins. In a way, he replaced the two boys he had lost, and the boys came into the world much like his father and uncle had come into the world. It's part of that comparison that I mentioned when we began, but more important than that, God God worked in the midst of a sinful union to bring about salvation for his people. You see, Tamar and the younger son, Perez, as we heard Matt read just a moment ago, Tamar and Perez are in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar would be joined later by Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, four women who were all at one time unbelieving pagans, not Jews, and three of them at one time were involved in some sort of sexual scandal. And we ask, why were they included? And the answer is this, to emphasize the fact that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Richard Phillips puts it this way, Jesus' ancestor from this sinful union would be Perez, whose name declared, what a breach you have made for yourself. Just as Perez broke through at his birth, Jesus is the Savior by whom God would break through the barrier of our sin. By Judah and Tamar, Jesus would come through a line of sinners and prostitutes, just as he would be known in his life for fellowship with these very kinds of people. Despite all the sin and unbelief of patriarchs such as Jacob and Judah, God was determined to provide a Savior who would seek and save those who are lost, and who, like Perez, would break through in his life and death to be our redeemer. So, what do we take away? I want us to consider four things tonight. There are four things I want us to look at. I want us to think about relationships. I want us to think about repentance. I want us to think about. Uh, want us to think about restoration, and finally, our reality. And first, I want to mention or, or, or address relationships and, and teenagers and boys and girls. This is geared specifically for you. It is becoming more and more popular, even somewhat faddish today, for those who have been raised in Christian homes and raised in the church to grow frustrated and discontent with their physical and spiritual families. And when they do, they decide to move out. They move out, and they cut ties, and they remove themselves from... Uh, The safety and security of their families, their physical families, and from the safety and security of their covenant communities of faith. They believe they will be better off living in the world and being associated with the world and loving the world and the things of the world. They believe that somehow associating themselves or uniting themselves with, with those who aren't Christians won't affect them. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul says bad company ruins or corrupts good morals. So more times than not, unbelievers sway believers down a path of idolatry. So that's number one. Number two is this. We've learned in our Genesis study so far that God's intention from the very beginning was to set aside a people as a holy nation. Setting apart a people for himself, a chosen people who were to be distinct and separate from everyone else, and he wanted his people to have holy offspring, holy children. Therefore, to marry outside of the covenant community, we've learned was, was forbidden. So, as I've said before, when a Christian marries a non-Christian, what they are saying to God is, "I know, I know you want me to be. You, I know you want to be my God." But I don't want to be. I'm not interested in being a part of your people. You're saying, I'm not interested in obeying you or following you. So in the words of another pastor, a person's choice in marriage showcases their values and is almost always the determining factor in the trajectory of their life. In other words... Your parents have the responsibility to lead you and to guide you and to instruct you down the right path when it comes to relationships, but it's your responsibility to listen to and to take heed of, to pay attention to, and to follow your parents' instructions and their warnings, because who you marry will put on display what you believe. Now, let's put both of those things together. I want you to hear this, please choose your friends wisely. Choose your friends wisely and beware of the company you keep. You can and should befriend those who aren't Christians. We want to share the gospel with them, but those relationships should should be limited in number and not as close as your relationships with other Christians. And when it comes to marriage, it's very simple. Only marry someone who loves the Lord Jesus. Only marry someone who loves the Lord Jesus. That's the first takeaway. Second takeaway is this. The importance of repentance cannot be overstated. The conviction of sin and repentance are gifts. They're blessings from the Lord In the words of J.C. Ryle, a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. The first thing God does when He makes anyone a new creature in Christ is shine light into his heart and show him that he is a guilty sinner. See, unfortunately, we often think of repentance as nothing more than saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and, and we do that quickly in order to alleviate our remorse from getting caught or and we and we and we don't always deal with the actual guilt of our sin. Our first response, many times, when our sin is exposed, is to attempt to cover it back up. We don't want we don't want it out in the open for all to see. Which is why Jesus said that we love darkness rather than the light because our deeds are evil. And rather than confess and own our sin, we tend to to get defensive. And not only do do we get defensive, but we blame others. And that's all quite different from what Judah does here. But this will not do. We, we, We need to cease. Because, in the words of Thomas Watson, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so, beloved, we need to hate our sin, we need to confess our sin. We need to own our sin. We need to appeal to the mercy of God for our sin. We need to turn from our sin. We need to mortify our sin. And like Judah who owned his sin and did not know Tamar again, our desire should be to repent and go and sin no more. Our third takeaway involves restoration. Many of us need to be reminded of that God's grace restores. There's no no question that Tamar sinned here. She was sexually immoral, regardless of her motivation. Seeking to rectify an injustice didn't justify her actions. However, I believe we should exercise compassion in our judgment of her. And here's why. I think it's possible that she acted the way she acted because she had been acted upon in the same way. In other words, the sin she committed was the sin that had been perpetrated against her. Onan had treated her like a prostitute. So she acted like a prostitute. It it was justifiable to her. She saw herself through the eyes of those who had taken advantage of her and acted out in the only way that made sense in light of what had happened to her. In the words of Richard Phillips, in the absence of faithful, nurturing love, we should not be surprised by Tamar's impure reaction that seemed justified in her mind. But here's the good news. While our sins are many, His mercy is more. God's grace is sufficient to, co- to cover a multitude of sins. His grace overcomes the sins we commit and his grace overcomes the sins committed against us his grace is sufficient for any anyone everyone and anyone who will repent and place their faith in Christ no matter what the sin there's no sin you've heard me say this multiple times there is no sin so small that it doesn't need forgiveness but there's also no sin so big that it can't be forgiven He can restore what's been abused. He can repair what's been broken. He can change any heart. He can right any wrong. He can break through any barrier. He broke into our world for the purpose of saving his people from their sins. He can salvage those who've been marred beyond usefulness. He loves to take what is meant for evil and use it for good. He loves to salvage what is marred. He loves to redeem those who deserve judgment. He loves to bring blessing from what has been cursed. As we sang earlier, He welcomes the weakest, and the vilest, and the poor. His mercy is more. And here's what's so amazing. When Judah absolved Tamar, he said, she's more righteous than I. But to those who repent and turn to faith in Christ, he says to them, you are as righteous as I am. You are as righteous as I am because your sins have been washed by my blood and you have been clothed in my robe of righteousness. Beloved, the bottom line is we we wouldn't be here apart from his grace. He's opened our eyes. He's exposed our sin. He's forgiven us. He's granted us repentance. He's forgiven us, and he's formed us into a body all by His grace alone. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. And then finally, the reality is this. As we think through, even last week and this week, maybe the weeks ahead, just because God is at work doesn't mean our lives will always be smooth and in order. And just because our lives are a mess doesn't mean he's not working. The question we should ask is, will we believe God's grace is sufficient for others? Are we willing to see God's grace active in the lives of other people? And will we believe God's grace is sufficient for us? Are we willing to see God's grace active in our lives as well? May that be so. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit and grace, we ask that you would enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. We pray these things for your glory and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen.